Okay, and welcome to episode eight of the We Do Science podcast. Today is an extra special episode because I've got two particularly impressive characters I shall refer to them as. Um, Firstly, I've got Brad Schoenfeld, who's a professor uh, at Lehman College and also the director of the Performance Lab and a a well-known expert in all things nutrition and also all things um, relating to muscle hypertrophy, etc., and I also have Alan Aragon, um, otherwise known as Sir Alan Aragon, who is a well-known expert, practitioner. Um, there's all kinds of amazing things I could say about Alan and uh, Brad, actually, so I'll just leave it at that. But these are two great researchers, uh, great experts and great practitioners. So um, today we're going to talk about a number of things but loosely around the concept of nutrient timing and a few other topics relating to evidence-based approaches to nutrition Um, as a little bit of advanced sort of reading to this podcast uh, and I'll remind folks at the end hopefully there's a couple of papers I'd like to draw your attention to both in the journal of the international Society for Sports Nutrition, uh, which sort of accompanies much of what we're going to talk about today, and one of which is a a fantastic review uh, by um, Brad and Alan and also uh, James Krieger in JSSN, which is the effect of protein timing on muscle strength and hypertrophy, a meta-analysis. It's one of the uh, highest-ranked and uh, viewed papers in JSSN, despite it only being in there recently. Uh, And the other one, of course, is another review by um, Alan and Brad, which is on nutrient timing revisited. Is there a post-exercise anabolic uh, window? Both of these are open access, and you can find these at jissn.org. Okay, guys, hi and welcome. What's going on, Alan? Yeah. So um, let's just jump straight into this. Brad, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you, uh, since we're going to talk about nutrient timing, I think it's important that we sort of loosely describe what nutrient timing is. And off air, I, I did mention that we're going to try and keep this around protein and, and carbohydrates. We, we may uh, cross over to a number of other topics because, of course, this could be a huge topic that could go on for hours. But do, do you want to just give the folks an idea of what nutrient timing is and then, and then we'll get into the meat of this? Yeah, it, it would be loosely defined as the consumption of nutrients in and around an exercise bout to optimize generally muscular adaptations. It could be performance as well, depending upon how you want to extrapolate it. But I think that would be a concise definition. Yeah, great. Uh, Alan, have you got anything to add to that? No, that's way too perfect. It is, isn't it? It's boring. <laughs> uh, I like to stretch this out. And of course, you know, I, I mean, I guess there are other ways we could word this, which is kind of a sort of an interpretation of what we mean by nutrient timing because of course that could be timing around a workout could be uh, as it applies to a day perhaps periodization which is a a sort of another idea that we're very familiar with um, in strength and conditioning but of course you can also periodize nutrition which might of course be the application of different nutritional approaches at different sort of phases of the year or different phases of the season, etc. So, I mean, what you know, Alan? Why? I mean, why is nutrient timing so controversial at this point in time? I think the the main things that make nutrient timing a controversial thing is the lack of specifying which goals and objectives you're applying it to, and also the lack of specifying which 
specific compounds you're talking about when you discuss nutrient timing and this has been a been a big issue with with the topic in general for for a long time now and also there's other things like uh, the only relatively recent advent of the non-acute or, or long-term longitudinal studies uh, that have examined the topic of nutrient timing and protein timing uh, specifically uh, as it applies to resistance trainees as opposed to say um, endurance type trainees so so yeah those are some of the main uh, bugs in in the topic yeah no that, that was well put I guess one of the things I mean I you know I've been I mean like you guys none of us are spring chickens I guess and we've been um, or at least I'm I'm not speaking for Brad who's who's young and fresh of course but yeah exactly <laughs> uh, but nutrient timing of course is a you know is is a word that or a, a, a concept that is a bit of a buzz now but it has been around in various forms I mean of course carbohydrate loading is a form of nutrient timing uh, and there are other sort of angles there, but of course, I guess much of this, I guess, comes back from when that book was written, isn't it? The, the sort of the seminal text on the subject by Ivy uh, and Portman. I mean, I mean, what, what, I mean, why, why has this become so popular? You think? Well, I will say that back when uh, Ivy and Portman wrote that book, uh, there was very limited data out at that point, and so it was an extrapolation of of the research, of practical application from research that was very limited in scope. So it kind of seemed at the time they wrote it, there was evidence that they were using the best available evidence at the time. Uh, and I would even say back then, there were certainly studies that contradicted that. But what we know now, number one, there's been a lot more studies that have been very contradictory. Uh, and we also know that the acute response does not necessarily translate into chronic adaptation. So I think the combination of those two really um, have put, put a big question mark around nutrient timing at this point. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Alan, do you want to uh, just quickly take us through what the original presentation of nutrient timing has been um, more from the early days, um, uh, you know, particularly as presented by that book, which most people will be, will be familiar with? Sure. Uh, John Ivey and, and Robert Portman, they postulated that there was an anabolic window uh, mainly focused on the post-workout period. So within roughly an hour after the workout is over, then the opportunity, so to speak, to maximize uh, muscular adaptations over the long term can be um, supposedly done through the administration of nutrients uh, as soon as possible. Um, in particular, uh, they focused on protein and or amino acids plus carbohydrate. So the, in a nutshell, the idea was you had this narrow window of opportunity. I've seen it listed in the lay literature as well as the uh, peer-reviewed literature as anywhere from about 35, 45-ish to an hour uh, time span after the, the training bout is over. So that's kind of the idea. And um, missing this, in quotes, anabolic window could um, supposedly compromise muscular adaptations over the long term. So that was the idea. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's something that seems to instill shock and fear in people, doesn't it? That I mean, you see it in the gym locker room, don't you? Where uh, I mean, barely have people put the you know the barbells and dumbbells down. I mean, they're inhaling their protein, carbohydrate, 
or their various stacks of pills and supplements in this belief that their muscles will drop off or they're just, you know, the whole, I mean, I've certainly heard people refer to, you know, make sure you take care of nutrient timings, you know, make sure you do your post-exercise workout recovery drink so you don't waste your workout. I mean, I mean, that's, that's literally how it's perpetuated and obviously this, this, this information, this science, which of course we're going to uh, talk about what we now know about this stuff, but that has been taken advantage of somewhat by the supplement industry. Um, but let, let's just focus, and in previous podcasts, particularly uh, with Stu Phillips and Kevin Tipton, we've gone into this quite a bit, this idea of the post-anabolic window. But Brad, um, just, just clarify this business of, you know, what is this post-anabolic window and, and you know, and, and is it even really there? Well, it is there. So after a workout, muscles are sensitized to anabolism, to protein from protein. So basically, the during a workout, you are in a catabolic state. And it is only until after the workout ends, where you would thus consume nutrients, particularly protein, where the body then, where protein uh, synthesis becomes supercompensated through the consumption of protein. There's a leucine threshold, which we can get into as well, which is thought to maximize this response. So it's not only protein, but it's various uh, amino acids, uh, essential amino acids that are particularly important here. But bottom line is, is that, yes, so there is a real effect that if you don't, let's say if you were to go 48 hours after a workout without having food, I don't think there's any question that you would uh, you would compromise your muscular gains. Uh, that just is not in the real world with the vast majority of people. But but I guess back in paleo times, they might not if they they're doing their anabolic uh, workout, or they're having their workout, and their anabolic window gets lost because they don't get their their kill and they can't eat their food after they get their protein. So I guess technically that could be the case, and, and certainly there is. And I believe Alan and I have clearly stated on multiple occasions that there is not, uh, it's not to dismiss the fact that you need nutrients post-exercise. It just becomes a question of, is there this narrow window and, and even how long is that window that you have? Uh, and I, I think the evidence is that at least 24 hours, your muscles are sensitized for at least 24 hours post-exercise. Yeah. And I think the issue here seems to be that there's a bit of a misunderstanding about Yes, there is a anabolic window per se, but that doesn't that isn't necessarily something you should take out of context of everything else you've done at other times of the day, isn't that right, Alan? So if you have been eating, and not you know two three meals at other times of the day where you have actually matched uh, pretty high levels of of protein intake and other macronutrients, the relevance of that that post-anabolic or, or and we can get into the pre-anabolic sort of scenario as well I mean what what I mean what do you have to say about that well the basis the research basis originally of the anabolic window was um, was a, a essentially a body of uh, acute research that looked at you know uh, from from one to you know up to maybe as high as four to six hours surrounding the training bout and then extrapolating conclusions from there uh, in just about all the studies that compared protein or amino acids with some sort of non-protein placebo like a carbohydrate or just a you know non-caloric flavor type of <clears throat> beverage 
then it was the amino acids and, and or the protein that won out each time in terms of the muscle protein synthetic response. Uh, now, when comparing different sort of timing configurations with while matching the treatments relative to the training bout, then there's really a, a, a huge equivocation of results. So there's really no um, consistent or compelling body of data that shows that yes, indeed it's the immediate post-exercise period that the amino acids and or carbohydrate work most of their magic compared to the, the pre-workout versus, uh, you know, sandwiching it versus, um, you know, the various timing configurations. Uh, for example, one hour post-exercise versus three hours post-exercise. There, there really is no uh, consistency of, uh, of, 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 of the outcome that you're, you're trying to anticipate from timing the protein. So what happens from that point is we have to look at the long-term data. And then once again, you know, lo and behold, we have an equivocation of results there too. And there are some details on why that might be possible. And but you know, I'll I'll let the flow of questions lead to that. Sure. Yeah. No. We'll definitely we'll come to that. So I guess you know one of the things that I know when I was first introduced to nutrient timing, uh, you know, sort of the the, the greatest argument that was used for that. Um, was yeah we've got to get the anabolic response we've got to spike the insulin we've got to you know and we want some fast digesting carbs in fact the faster the better um, I'm going to come back to Alan on this one um, I mean Alan why you know I mean is faster better when it comes to the post-workout carb situation okay um, in the beginning the research examining the effect of faster carbs versus slower carbs and also uh, a sooner ad administration of carbohydrate versus a later administration of carbohydrate focused on glycogen resynthesis rates. So in the beginning you kind of have to ask who is that relevant to? And typically within the context of nutrient timing and hypertrophy, uh, we're looking at strength and power athletes as well as the bodybuilding uh, type of goals. So. Uh, while there are certain populations on the fringe who may train to glycogen depletion more than once a day within, you know, uh, a short time period between bouts, uh, this typically doesn't uh, apply to strength, power, and, and bodybuilding athletes. And sure, you, you can create scenarios where certain athletes are depleting the quads or and pick, pick a body part, a muscle group, depleting glycogen within... Um, short order of the bouts, but generally speaking, athletes who are uh, focused on muscular hypertrophy are not going to be training the same muscle group to exhaustion, uh, you know, within like a multiple times within the same day. So back to the question that you ask, fast carbs versus slow carbs or quick administration versus slow, it mainly applies to endurance athletes who are depleting glycogen in the same muscle group. Uh, more than once in the day. And I, I want to also add a little wrinkle to that. When Ivy and Portman put out their, their book, there was not a whole, in fact, I don't think there really was much research at all comparing protein administration in uh, substantial doses or doses that max out the acute 
muscle protein synthetic response, which would be rough, roughly 20-ish grams uh, in young people and, and on a, a, you know, slightly more for, for older people in the 35 to 40-ish gram range, uh, that those protein doses were never compared um, with carbohydrate and protein doses of, of matched amounts. So there was this battery of research that compared 6 to 10-ish total grams of protein uh, with that same amount with additional carbohydrate. And indeed, the additional carbohydrate added to the muscle protein synthetic response. But we now know, at least from acute research and a replication of acute research, that once you have enough protein in the dose, to max out uh, muscle protein synthesis or, or to max out net muscle protein balance, then any additional carbohydrate does not augment that response uh, when, when the protein dose is high enough. So um, there's a, so just to kind of circle it back, there's a couple of issues surrounding that question. One of them has to do with glycogen resynthesis, faster versus slower, and you know the quicker carbs are going to get it done faster, and naturally the sooner you get the carbs in the, the sooner that you're going to start restocking glycogen. And then the other issue is uh, the net muscle protein uh, synthetic response of addi additional carbs versus not. And we found that, at least in acute research, when the protein dose is sufficient, the additional carbs do not augment MPS. Yeah. No, I, I think this brings us really to an important word, which is context, doesn't it? And it's not like everyone needs to worry about nutrient timing. In fact, in um, in your uh, papers, I know you've you've made good points of this, Brad. Do you want to just clarify the you know what, what in what context is this relevant? And in, in and then perhaps uh, Alan can tell us in what context it's not relevant. Yeah, well, so it depends which way you want to go with this. Now, one of the things that Alan and I have touched on quite. Uh, quite a lot is the importance of looking at the context of when you had your last meal versus the need to consume something in the post-workout period and there is an anabolic effect of having a meal and that can last up to six hours or so so just from that perspective for most people it would seem that that will mitigate a lot of the issues here if you're asking from a who is this important to well certainly if you're doing two a days let's say you're a bodybuilder or a uh, any type of athlete where you're doing two anaerobic or aerobic style workouts within the same day, repleting glycogen is going to be very important within that day. Over time, it's not, if, it, if you're going into the next day, glycogen repletion is a non-issue because it's just the rate of glycogen repletion that is increased, not the total. You're going to replete all your glycogen stores by the next day, assuming you're taking insufficient carbs within the day. So really that's going to be a non-issue. But he, here's what I would say. And this, I, I don't know how much you want to get into at this moment, the results of our meta. But what we found was that there was a small effect of protein timing. It was 0.2 effect size, which is a small, but, but it was significant, meaning it doesn't happen by chance. However, we did a, what's called a meta regression. And really, the entire effect was explained by the fact that the timing studies, the, or the timing groups, had greater protein intake than the groups that were in a control that did not have the timed effect, meaning that the groups that were taking in this timed dose of protein were consuming about 1.7 grams per kilogram, which we know is roughly what's required to uh, have been a non-negative protein balance. 
nitrogen balance and the group that was in the control were getting 1.3, which is below that amount. And that seemed to explain the effect. What I will say is that it's still equivocal. The, there were only a few studies that actually matched protein uh, and they, were, they had disparate results. And there were only two that, had, um, that used trained subjects and basically one showed an effect, one didn't. So we, we just have, there's too much gray area. And what I would say is, is that with, with great confidence, I would say that for the average gym goer who wants to just get a better body and be healthy, uh, it's not going to make any difference. So you have it three, four, five hours, really. It's not going to make a, really a tangible, meaningful effect on your body. However, if you are a bodybuilder or a strength athlete that needs every last morsel of muscle, and, and that's very important to you, and that can be the difference between winning and losing a competition or an event, then I would say that at this point, without knowing otherwise, it's prudent to nutri It's pr uh, prudent to take in your protein quickly uh, after the bout. Now, do you have to guzzle a, a shake the minute you stop? No, but I would certainly say within an hour or so it would be a good idea without having contrary evidence or, or conclusive contrary evidence that you might still get a small but potentially meaningful effect. Sure. So, Alan, if, if we know that you know, it's it's kind of important for certain people in very specific scenarios, which Brad has just described. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we realize there are other, maybe bigger factors that we should be prioritizing um, beyond this. I mean, what, you know, what would you say are the things, I mean, obviously, there's there's a number of obvious ones, but I'll let you spell them out. I mean, what what's the, what's the, what's the sort of, if we had to refer to the, the sort of you know the number one rule in approaching nutrient timing um, what what's the you know what's the basis that we need to establish before we even get into nutrient timing well sort of the obvious one that you're talking about spelling out would be nailing your targeted uh, macronutrient intake for the day in in total uh, as Brad mentioned the the largest effect was seen um, the largest effect that we saw in, in the meta-analysis was, was total protein that, that provided the, the largest effect was total protein intake uh, rather than the timing of the protein intake. Um, something I wanted to add to that to kind of add some perspective is that we uh, initially considered 29 studies for the analysis and only five of those studies initially considered for analysis matched protein intake between the conditions. So that, to put it another way, um, five out of the 29 studies initially considered for analysis were actual true timing studies, whereas the rest of the, the you know, of the, this pool of 29 studies were actually just examining additional protein rather than the, comparing the temporal placement of that protein relative to the training bout. So interesting three of the five studies did not see a uh, significant effect of, of timing protein. So, and, and another little interesting tidbit, if you'll bear with me, only three of the uh, initial five studies that matched protein made the meta-analysis due to, you know, issues that, uh, you know, we, we couldn't get enough, uh, enough data to calculate an effect size. But, but nevertheless, two out of the three studies considered for analysis um, did not show a significant effect of timing. 
And that's really kind of the interesting part, and it's the part that a lot of people are, are not aware of, is that out of, you know, 29 studies, we pared it down to 23. Out of the five studies that actually matched protein, we pared it down to three. But even when you look at the studies that did match protein, the majority of them didn't show an effect. So, um, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of add that perspective because folks talk about the anabolic window and the uh, the opportunity to time protein near the training bout as if there's just this long succession of studies showing that it's that it's effective. But indeed, out of 30-ish studies, you're only looking at five-ish studies that actually matched protein intake and examined the timing issue specifically. So now, absence of evidence, as they say, doesn't equal automatically the evidence of absence, and it's not like there aren't limitations to the body of research. Uh, certainly, we're, we're, we have a scarcity of uh, studies done on res resistance-trained individuals. Uh, we have a scarcity of studies uh, looking at specifically the placement of uh, su sufficient protein and or carbohydrate relative to the bout. Um, and so, you know, Brad and I, uh, we've looked at the gaps in the literature here and, and we've uh, come up with some ideas on how to potentially uh, begin to fill those gaps. So it's, it's pretty exciting. But yeah, back to your original question, I would say looking at total macronutrient targets within the day would be priority one. And then the icing, uh, icing on the cake would be specific timing of the nutrients relative to the training bout. And of course, this is going to vary with the population. Just an example, I mean, car carbohydrate timing, as, as an example of minimal importance of nutrient timing is for non-fasted, low to moderate intensity resistance training lasting an hour or less. So protein and carbohydrate timing in that scenario. You know, fed training, hour or less, uh, resistance training in novices. I mean, you know, that, that's probably the lower end of nutrient timing importance when you're talking about protein and carbohydrate. Uh, on the end of maximal importance, you're looking at endurance type training that's intensive and glycogen depleting. It's lasting, you know, approaching or exceeding two hours in length, uh, and it's happening more than once in a day. Then that, then you've got immediate threats to, uh, you know, fuel demands and, and such that would maximize the importance of nutrient timing. And there are other examples as well, like like the timing of caffeine, which, uh, you know, Brad mentioned earlier before, before we got into this. There, there are specific uh, applications to the timing of certain compounds that make it ridiculous for you to time, uh, you know, it uh, after the training bout, for example. So, so yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, no, that was excellent. I mean, I guess it's ironic, isn't it, that... Uh, Perhaps the people that need it least are the ones that actually do the most nutrient timing, and the people that need it the most are the ones that don't even know it exists. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, guys, let's. Uh, uh, there's a couple of areas. I'm going. I actually want to come back to a few things that you raised in a minute because you raised some excellent points. Uh, but I mean, why? Why? When we're talking about these studies and, and this information that people have sort of run away with. I mean, what, you know, why is there a problem with just looking at a piece of research and then, you know, following the conclusions of that paper and, and, and just assuming that therefore that is fact? I mean, why, why shouldn't we be doing that? Well, I mean, one research study is, is never uh, 
should never be taking as a be-all end-all. And every research study is going to have limitations. So you need to, first of all, hone in on that. I, I think one of the problems is, is that um, people are absolutely, we've come to a point where we have too many abstract armchair uh, researchers who have never really done research. They read an abstract and they just extrapolate. And you really have to get into the nitty gritty as to who was examined. You have to take a look at the population, which has generalizability effects. If something is carried out on 80-year-old uh, women in a nursing home, that does not necessarily, uh, you cannot necessarily generalize that those results will hold true in 22-year-old college football players. Uh, you have to look at, like Alan and, and I had mentioned certainly before, when was the protein given? Was it given as a placebo? Uh, was the uh, non-timing group given as a placebo versus uh, given, uh, you know, as a matched protein group? So there's so many factors to consider. What was the uh, some other things? What was the modality used to measure hypertrophy? Uh, was it? There were studies that have used skinfold analysis. And if you've ever done skinfold analysis you know how widely varying that the results can be on that versus, let's say, an MRI exam. They're not the same. You cannot equate them. Uh, so there's just so many factors that you need to consider. And then you need to consider a body of evidence that there can be uh, things can happen by chance. Uh, even if they are statistically significant, it just gives you a p-value. And things can not show up. Uh, and, and actually you didn't have the right sample size, so meaning that you didn't have enough subjects. So way too many things, and one of the, the beauties of a meta-analysis, well, certainly it has drawbacks, is that we get a lot of statistical power by, by pooling all the studies that have been done. You get a much greater ability to, to look at statistical power and to see if there is a difference. So there are some issues that people have brought up about the different methodologies used, and certainly there is some validity to that, but when you're dealing with good inclusion criteria, as Alan and I believe we uh, have in the studies, uh, you can make some, some very good generalizations from it. Like I said, it's not the be-all, end-all, but I feel very confident in saying that when you do pull the research together in a quantifiable way, as you do in a meta-analysis, that uh, for the vast majority of people, uh, who are not bodybuilders or people that really want to maximize, that just want good results from their their routines, uh, it's not going to be of real significance to them. Yeah, no. I, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, guys, let's sort of move away from this a little bit. I think, um, I mean, I could end that little section saying if you want to acquire some expertise in critical appraisal, uh, particularly in this area, um, Obviously, you need to read around and so on. But Alan has a fantastic uh, research review, the Alan Aragon Research Review, that I actually have my students read um, to acquire skills in uh, reading papers. And uh, I really hope that uh, some of my upcoming papers, when they're published, do not end up in your research review because <laughs> I don't want you to rip them apart. I mean, it's a skill. Can I also add one thing? that uh, So we talk about nutrient timing, an interesting kind of take on this is the fasted cardio, which really is a form of nutrient. Now, it's not in the same, we're not looking for an anabolic effect, but there is this um, belief that if you perform, or, or certainly when I say a belief, there is a, um, a sect within certain gym goers who do believe that uh, if you perform your cardio on an empty stomach first thing in the morning, that you can enhance fat loss. And really, this has just been extrapolated to your point, or to your question before, from acute data, it's virtually every study there has not been 
until right now because I'm actually carrying out a, with Alan, we, we both are carrying out a, a controlled study on this, but it's based on, on acute data, which, uh, which has a lot of limitations in terms of extrapolating these results. And I, I actually published a review on this topic. And if you look at, if you look within the acute data, it's easy just to look at an abstract and say, well, it's clear that you're burning, you're oxidizing or burnt, you're having greater lipolysis. But lipolysis does not necessarily equal oxidation. Uh, the body does not necessarily mean that over the course of time that those results are going to pan out. So again, very important that you, uh, you become an educated uh, exercise scientist, if you will. Even if you're not a researcher, you can make yourself educated and understand the extrapolation of research results from studies. Yeah, no, excellent. So um, there's a few other topics I want to get into, but can we... Uh, just quickly come up with some possible uh, practical applications to nutrient timing since we've delved into it. I know that, um, frankly, if everyone reads your papers, they will get a huge amount of meat uh, into this topic. But let, let's just quickly discuss, uh, Alan, how about just some, firstly, some general nutrient timing applications um, that, that, that would be useful to the average sort of exerciser? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> aside from getting in your targeted macros within the day, uh, what Brad and I came up with as a practical recommendation you know, in our Nutrient Timing Revisited article was to take in uh, somewhere between roughly 0.4 to 0.5 grams of protein per kilogram of lean body mass on both sides of the training bout, within reason, roughly one to two hours on both sides of the training bout. Um, and this works out pounds-wise to well, 0.2 to 0.25-ish uh, grams per pound. I mean, some people can narrow it down to about a quarter, a quarter of a gram of protein per pound of uh, ideal body weight. And this would work out to, you know, what what we know to maximize the acute or short-term anabolic response, which is roughly 20 to 40 grams of protein uh, that would be consumed. Um, Roughly within one to two hours of both sides of the uh, of the training session, and this would be maximizing or exhausting all hypothetical routes towards anabolism. So you can see that you can still. I mean, you don't have to have your your protein dose, you know, within seven seconds of finishing your last set of squat rack curls. You know, you can actually get your training bout done and drive home in mild traffic, and then get home and have your steak and potatoes. You don't necessarily have to have that way dextrose shake in the locker room immediately after. Um, and certainly if you're in a position where you have to train fasted for whatever reason, then it does make sense to uh, take advantage of the archetypical anabolic window and have your, your protein and carbohydrate as soon as possible after the training bout. But for most people, that's, uh, you know, that's a very sort of fringe scenario. Um, <clears throat> as far as uh, other timing stuff goes with, with protein in particular, you're probably not going to want to have less than three uh, substantial or you know, sufficient protein doses in the course of a day. You're probably not going to want to uh, you know, dip below three anabol <clears throat> acute anabolic uh, events, uh, protein-mediated anabolic anabolic events in a day. Now this gets a little bit uh, theoretical because there's not a whole lot of data comparing, let's say, you know, three uh, protein-rich meals versus six protein-rich meals 
in resistance training subjects. Uh, there's just a, a huge gap in the literature there. Um, but that, that would be my, my sort of basic uh, practical recommendations for nutrient timing with specific focus on protein. Yeah, no, I think that's great because, of course, real life does require a few pragmatic approaches. And uh, uh, I know Joey certainly would advocate that there is, you know, some rationale behind having that protein shake or whatever, not because it's important for nutrient timing in, in the way in which we've been discussing, but because, frankly, someone's going to forget to feed at another time of day because they're in a meeting or in the office or you know, whatever, they're, they're, uh, whoever forgot to buy the uh, the meat for the dinner that evening. So I guess one could argue it's it's not a problem to have uh, have it, but it's certainly, I, I guess it's just, you don't need to suffer extreme anxiety because you forgot your protein shake in your bag in the gym. And, and, I, and from what you were saying, and of course what we discovered from Stu Phillips and Kevin Tipton is, is we don't even really necessarily even need to get that from a protein shake uh yes it's all fast digesting and blah 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 which is all wonderful well and good but actually like you say if you, you just have your meat and eggs or whatever and uh, for most people hitting those protein targets uh for the whole day will suffice and that's even i mean is that is that going to work for not necessarily those of us that are wanting to be bodybuilders or of course those that are on uh, how should we put it um, synthetic support, uh, synthetic supplements to get jacked and swollen and all that. But are, are we, um, you know, for those of us do want to look, you know, we want to look good on the beach and that sort of thing. Um, we're pretty much able to hit that just through our regular meals, aren't we? And then just, just make sure that we time that, um, as you've stated, around our training sessions. We don't need to get crazy. Yeah, yeah, if you're yeah, eating I, three to five meals a day, I mean, it's it's going to be impossible not to be to have something more than a couple hours after. By the time you end up finishing training, uh, if you're having, let's say, let's say you have four meals a day that are spaced out fairly evenly, it's it's impossible not to have a meal within two hours or so after a workout. So really, it's it's kind of a, a lot to do about nothing at that point for the vast majority of people. Yeah, I, I wanted to add that when you have a meal. The time it takes for circulating nutrient levels to peak in the blood is, depending on the size of the meal, it could take it could take an hour. I mean, you know, at soonest it'll you know it'll take forty five minutes to half an hour if you're consuming this really quick, fast digesting type of uh, shake. But I mean, you know, the anabolic effect of a meal can last so three to six hours, really, depending on the size of the meal. So uh, a lot of folks who timed a pre-training protein and or you know carbohydrate. Are going to still be above baseline levels nutrient-wise, uh, even after the training bout is done, uh, especially if it's not a marathon type of training bout. So uh, the the placement of the pre-exercise meal is something to take into consideration too, as far as the urgency of the uh, post-workout timing. Yeah. Well, what I something and I mentioned to you uh, just before we started recording this was uh, so, uh, an area that I find interesting, and it's it's something that I've I've looked into um, over time and uh, we had a lecture to my students here, our ISSN diploma students uh, by Dr. Graham Close um, uh, over here in the UK, uh, actually on the topic of nutrition, uh, nutrient timing and periodization. Uh, but one area that we got into was this idea of pharmacokinetics. And uh, I certainly don't have an ambition to get into that in any depth here, but it is worth thinking about, isn't it guys, that, that 
when we're thinking about nutrient timing, particularly when we're thinking about, well, we're taking our uh, uh, caffeine or we're taking our protein supplements or our fish oils or, you know, because these are all nutrients that we could time. Um, it's not necessarily just, it's not going to get in as soon as you ingest the product and there's a certain amount of time it will take to have an impact and also there may be a certain amount of time where you have to to be exposed to that substance before any adaptations occur isn't that right yeah so i i mean when uh, talking about something like caffeine it's vital that you look at the pharmacokinetics of of the uh, supplement when before you're taking it. If you're if you're taking it three hours before your event, you already pe- the uh, supplement's peaked and you're not getting the benefit of it. So that's if you're looking certainly for an ergogenic effect from a performance standpoint, th- that's huge. I don't think, at least based upon the literature I've seen, that that really applies to the anabolic window concept. That the timing in that respect really becomes moot uh, within very wide limits. But that, maybe Alan can address that further. Well, I, I think you pretty much covered that thing, and caffeine is a, is a great example of the importance of, of, of timing a compound based on pharmacokinetics. Um, I, I also I just wanted to add that there are certain supplements like creatine and beta-alanine that require a uh, sort of a, an extended period where uh, tissue stores need to get saturated in order for the effects to be seen. This can take, you know, uh, days to weeks. So... Um, and, and you know, once you're saturate, saturated, for example, with creatine, then the specific timing of the creatine dose relative to the training bout, once you're saturated, is, is minimal. So, Yeah, no, excellent. I, I mean, that is a topic, I think, all in itself that's worth a discussion. So, um, you know, look, we, we're, we're, we're actually running out of time here, and um, I've got a feeling we could be doing this for hours. Uh, but I, I did want to quickly come back to a topic that I know is particularly important to you um, Alan but as, as scientists I know both of you will be very strong on this topic but you know the difference between um, sort of science and pseudoscience let's just quickly explore that because I think since we're talking about things like nutrient timing that is a classic example of something that has sort of crossed some barriers between evidence and sort of bro science so Alan just give us a quick introduction to that concept Oh man, do you have do you have another hour? <laughs> I know, I know. Oh gosh. Okay, uh, I I think that the full spectrum of evidence is important to take into consideration. Everything from anecdote all the way through to your observational literature, all the way through to your experimental literature, and then finally to your meta analyses of uh, well designed randomized controlled trials, high quality RCTs. Uh, I think that the validity of anecdotal data is can can either be really horrible or or actually great depending on the the source of the anecdote. You know, like for example, if uh, oh, if if Jim Wendler or Dave Tate uh, or uh, you know or Louis Simmons are, are talking about powerlifting uh, protocols and techniques, their anecdotes are going to have a hell of a lot more. Uh, validity than some dude who just jogs for an hour every Sunday you know um, so so the the validity of anecdote can really be something very quite high or, or just completely worthless 
And of course, the threats to anecdotal validity are confirmation bias and a, a, a number of other biases that can really ruin that. But I, I want to make it clear that anecdote, even even the lowest, the weakest form of evidence, anecdote and 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 you know perceived authority and tradition, those type of things sh should be taken into consideration as far as the evidence spectrum goes. Um, there is a lot of of gray area in in the literature as far as nutrient timing, protein timing, carb timing uh, for muscular hypertrophy. I mean, you, you, you talk to bodybuilders um, and a lot of guys at the elite level, they'll train, I mean, easily they'll, they'll train for two hours, you know, and, and just like, just really bust an ass for 90 minutes to two hours, sometimes two and a half. They'll spend like half the day in the gym and you're, you're telling them that, oh yeah, your intra-workout shake isn't doing anything for you. <laughs> I mean, these guys are hydrating. These guys are getting motivated by the, you know, possible central effects of, of the compounds they're taking in. Um, they're, you know, all, all kinds of things could be synergizing to make their intra-workout shakes uh, actually something that's objectively uh, useful for their particular protocol. Um, the, uh, you know, when people talk about evidence-based nutrition, my position is that you have to be aware of the hierarchy of evidence strength and then consider the full range within that hierarchy. And, you know, Brad could perhaps talk about that. And so, you know, I'll just kind of hand it over to him. Yeah. And I would actually take a slightly different take to this because I don't think anecdotal evidence is pseudoscience. That's anecdote. For me, pseudoscience is when someone takes science and bastardizes it to achieve a certain end. I mean, the, Alan is uh, should know the paleo diet probably is one of the best examples where they've they've taken um, a a understanding of what we know out of completely out of context and made a whole um, cult around it. And there's so many you can look in in the fitness field, whether it's exercise or nutrition. So many of these. Uh, of the gurus do this where they'll selectively I think that really is where the pseudoscience comes in it's either selectively choosing science at the exclusion of other uh, important evidence that's abound or or else not properly um, analyzing the science taking snippets out that really aren't what the science says and and to me that is is worse because anecdote if a bodybuilder says hey look I I'll do concentration curls and I get a peak in my biceps. You can dismiss that. He says, "All right, well, he, that's what he says." And but when you're when you have the guise of science around it, it, it to me elevates something to a higher order and can fool the people people that most people do not are not savvy enough about science to be able to in research to be able to have an understanding about this. And there are a lot of a lot of people making a lot of money who uh, who do things under the guise of science where, where it really has very little scientific basis and that that to me is the worst yeah I think that cherry picking is a huge problem uh, and a huge uh, it, it's a very common thing that, that people do when they're discussing any given topic whether it be nutrient timing or whether it be high carb versus low fat dieting um, people will gravitate towards the the evidence that that emotionally clicks with them rather than considering the, the full spectrum of the available data and drawing conclusions from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think it's always important to bear in mind the context of how you're applying this stuff. And uh, yeah, and anyway, I, I attended a lecture not that long ago. Um, Eric Helms uh, was giving here in the UK. It was a great, a great day um, of lectures, two days of lectures. 
um, and they happened to make a comment that uh, you know today uh, uh, today's bro science might have been yesterday's science because at some point uh, somebody you know there might have been a really good reason for saying what they were saying but of course at some point that could become the opposite so uh, I, you know we have to bear that in mind well okay guys um, I think we're going to call it a day um, I think we're in danger of, of being able to talk for hours and hours and I think that's a good place to keep it there um, I would like to thank both of you for your time it's been wonderful you um, you know it's been awesome to have you here and I've certainly learnt a lot from you and I hope the, uh, the listeners have, have experienced that too so thanks guys thank you thank you yeah, and uh, okay, guys, so that is the end of episode eight of the We Do Science podcast. I'm going to uh, recommend you guys, of course, check out Alan Aragon's uh, research review. It's something that I use almost daily, actually. I certainly use it with my students. It's an excellent um, way of keeping up to date with what's going on in the literature, but also fine-tuning your skills in being able to actually understand and critically appraise. It's, it's an excellent tool. And of course, Brad uh, has got a, a bunch of papers out there, some of which are with um, Alan, of course, which are well worth a review. And I recently bought um, uh, Brad's book on uh, Max Muscle, which I uh, read while I was on holiday, Brad, and I thought it was most excellent. Thank you very I was much. Saying, you're looking very huge now. I know, man. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so it's, I'm, it's I'm, working. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I'd like to thank you guys, of course, for your time. And my name is Laurent Brannock, and I'll see you guys soon. Oh, and I always forget this. If you want to find out more about what we're doing at Guru Performance, please come to guruperformance.com where you can learn about our education, the ISSN diploma, and Learn more from guys like this and uh, other great experts. So take care and I'll speak to you soon.